this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today grew up in the Robert Taylor homes in Chicago's South Side. She earned an MFA in creative writing at Columbia College, Chicago, and her writings appeared in African Voices, Chicago Journal, Chicago Reader, Hair Trigger 27, and Warpland. She's the recipient of many awards, and her debut novel, Last Summer on State Street, is set in Chicago, where she still lives. Toya Wilf, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's so lovely to finally meet you because we've been in touch for many months about this particular <laughs> book. And we'll get on to that a little bit later. It's yes. called Last Summer on State Street and it's your debut novel. It centres on a black girl coming of age in the Robert Taylor homes in 1999. So I think it's really important to start off with what were the Robert Taylor homes and what's your connection? Yeah, so um, it was a series of high-rise projects. I think uh, here in London you call them estates, but it's sort of public housing. Uh, 16 stories tall, there were 28 of them crammed into two miles. And it's where I grew up, it's where I called home for the first 20 years of my life. And it sounds, I mean, from your description, although there's a lot of lovely community stuff going on, there's also a huge amount of violence, there's poverty, there's despair. Sure. Um, All the things you'd never choose for yourself. But people raised families there. They loved their children and grew them there in spite of all those things. Mm. Tell me about your own childhood. Yeah, I had a very lovely childhood somehow. I won't say somehow. My mother worked really hard to take us out of the neighborhood. A lot of the things that people sort of come to Chicago and do, like go downtown, go to the lakefront, go to Navy Pier, that was sort of my playground because our actual playground had been taken over by gangsters. So, But I, I recall like birthday parties and my I attended a public school that was just across the street, but I just enjoyed sort of joining all sorts of academic competitions at school. And I don't know, I just, I somehow think back on my childhood. And in addition to sort of some of the war zone um, type things I had to encounter, my mother and grandmother worked really hard to just like still give their children a childhood. Mm. Tell us about the kids that weren't so lucky. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it sort of goes back to your parents and your household. And keeping up with your children, my mom loves to use this phrase, I kept up with my children. Like, she always knew where we were. Because um, when you have those sorts of uh, terrible things that are happening in the environment, if you don't know where your children are, you don't know what sort of things they're falling into. And so I definitely had classmates who, at a certain stage before we left elementary school, they sort of disappeared from school. And it's because they sort of were just in the neighborhood now. Or parents who... They had fallen into drugs and alcoholism, and that meant they weren't sort of nurturing and loving their children. And so I definitely had classmates and neighbors um, who weren't as fortunate to have an overbearing mom. But I definitely think, I don't know that I would say that made up the entire or like a larger percentage of what was happening in the neighborhood. Mm. And and for some of those kids, the parents who were sort of in a better place, they would sort of adopt them 
feed them, do their hair, let their children like be in community with them. So again, using this word community, sometimes other families picked up the slack. Mm-hmm. Now, the Robert Taylor homes were in fact completely taken down. They, they were destroyed. Yes. Like Chicago demolished all of their public housing at different points in time. Like Cabrini Green um, was gone before they even started uh, working on the Robert Taylor homes. So depending on which housing project you were uh, living in, you sort of watched what was coming for you. And what happened to people when they left those homes, when they when they were demolished? Different things. I think uh, some people, they moved to other neighborhoods that were also not so great. Um, some of them, there's like a housing choice voucher program in the government. And so some of them were able to move into better housing situations. Some people moved in with family and then some people were homeless. So it's just such a It was such a different fate for different families. Mm. What happened to your family? So at the time that the buildings were coming down, I was actually away at college. The last two years of the buildings, before they started to demolish them, I was a freshman and sophomore in college, so I would come back home on uh, holidays. And there would be such a transition of being on a beautiful college campus with squirrels running around to like coming back home to this dilapidated building. But when they started to relocate residents in my mom's building, um, she was able to move into another neighborhood that was a lot lovelier. And maybe mostly because her daughter uh, loved to write letters and and sort of get very involved. Mm-mm. I mean, you described just talking about being in nature and having squirrels and things, how in, in the Robert Taylor homes, there was just dust. There was no greenery at all. And it didn't start out that way. Um, I think when they originally built them, there were trees and they're sort of built in this like U shape. And in the middle, there was a playground. So the original construction had these sort of important green spaces. But by the time I was sort of coming of age and like the characters in this book, by the time they're coming of age, there isn't much green space. And I think you'll notice in the book that school is such a refuge for them. And so even over at the school grounds, there's a little bit more green There's always, like, you know, play spaces and things like that. So I think in the crevices of this sort of neighborhood, there were these places where kids and and families could find sanctuary. Back to to your own life. So you're at college. What are you studying? Let's see. Originally, athletic training, which is very funny. Um, Because in high school, I loved science. I loved, like, advanced placement classes. And then I loved basketball. But later I would discover that I loved basketball players. It wasn't really about the sport. (laughs) (laughs) But I should should point out, you're very tall. I am very tall. But I never played... I didn't play sports. I was involved in so many sort of academic programs. Um, And even in high school, it was like student council and marching band. And it was just very obvious to me that, like, I was not an athlete. Like, I was tall, and it caused lots of frustration from the coaches. They would always say, like, when are you going to join? But even at an early age, I always knew what I wanted to do, and no one was going to sort of force me into something else. And so what is it that you wanted to do? Well... Eventually, I found my way back over to writing. Because when I was like 10 years old, I entered an essay competition and and won and then had to read the essay in front of the entire school. And everyone was just like, quiet. 
and still. And even as a 10-year-old, that sort of translated into, you did something powerful. Like, let's do it again. And I just continued to write. And I think sometimes, like, along the way, you get to, you get older and people are like, what are you going to be when you grow up? And then for a long time, I would say, like, I'm going to be an attorney. Because also, I've been tall my whole life. Like, even by the time I was 10, I was taller than all the students in my school. And people would approach me and say, are you going to be a basketball player or a model? And I would say, I'm going to be an attorney. You know, (laughs) but I think the sort of like communication, like oral communication and written communication, it's always been something that's been an important part of my life. So after my first semester of college, I sat down with my advisor and he said, these grades aren't they're not incredible. But all of your English classes, they're A's. So why aren't you an English major? And I just think it was a moment where an administrator was really doing their job very well. Mm. So tell us then how where your writing went to from there. Yeah, so I started writing really bad short stories. (laughs) And I'll tell anyone listening who writes, just keep writing. It'll get better. But I started writing short stories, and I sort of fell into, um, when I started studying at Columbia College, we would have these um, writing exercises. And then I started writing about these same little girls, and they were back in my neighborhood. And after my family had moved from the Robert Taylor homes and I'd gone off to college, I didn't want to think about Robert Taylor. I didn't want to think about, like, you know, gunshots and living in dilapidated buildings and things like that. But then suddenly I was writing these characters who were living there. And I I personally had to go back there. And then I realized, like, after writing the third short story, that maybe this wants to be a novel. And one of the stories won a short story competition, which is incredible affirmation. You're like, okay wait a minute, like, I have something here. Mm. So then I just started to polish those stories, and they became this novel. And you had a very influential teacher along the way. Yes. Miss Audrey Neffenegger. Um, Who's <laughs> was, our, our great mutual friend. Yeah, like, she... It's interesting. By the time I met Audrey, who had just... She's an sort of artist by... I would say that's where she started. And then one day she decides she's just going to write a novel because she's brilliant. And I sort of met her once she'd moved over to the fiction writing department, had no idea that she was this like amazing artist. But her class was like really hard to get into. You had to apply. And then she selected 12 people. And it was sort of a novel writing workshop, which you can't find a novel writing workshop anywhere. And yeah, I just I started working on this book with a with a major intensity. Yeah. Now, she, of course, is the author of The Time Traveller's Wife, in case people people don't know. Uh, yeah. And as I say, she's been a guest on this programme. In fact, you can listen to our archives and hear, yeah. hear a, a conversation we had with her earlier. But that is what put us in touch together and, and I think helped you a little on your way to publication. Yeah, it's so interesting. I wrote an article. I actually just saw it in the Monaco Cafe. Uh, the Chicago, the travel guide for the city of Chicago. Audrey sent an email and she goes, do you want to write this? And I actually, I was I was really sort of trying to revise this book because I needed to find an agent and finally get this thing out there. And then here was this like lovely opportunity to procrastinate. I'm like, I'm going to go write this article. <laughs> uh, I'd reached out to Audrey and I wanted her to write it. And she's like, I don't have time, but I've got this perfect person. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. And then, of course, like, as an artist, I spent all this time running around Chicago nightlife. And we have an incredible sort of scene of theater. So many, so many people, so many comedians on television, they trained in Chicago at Second City. And so I really want to talk about, like, our improv scene and music and things like that. So I, like, get to... and this 
by the time you get to the end of revising a thing, you are going crazy and you hate it almost. And I'm like, oh, this is this wonderful opportunity to just take a break. So I wrote the article and um, then I go back to the manuscript and I'm like, oh, now you have to find an agent. And it's so it, when I think about it now, it's so random. I reach out to you and to Chloe Ashby and ask, hey. Do you know any agents? You guys are way across the pond, right? Do you know any agents who are currently looking for, you know? But, you know, these things happen. I don't know. I just I just had this notion that I ought to ask the two of you. And Chloe goes, no, I don't know anyone. And then you tell me, like, I might know someone. And I'd actually sent, I'd actually approached three agents by then. But I felt in my soul that, like, there was one more person I should reach out to. So it was just this kind of, like weird thing, but you were so instrumental in getting this thing out into the world. So it's great to be back here in London, full circle. wonderful (laughs) for me to have you here. And the fact that you met the agent, you absolutely gelled. And now this wonderful, wonderful book uh, last summer on State Street is out. So the centre of the book, four young female friends, they are Fifi, Precious, uh, Stacia and Tonya. And they're all about 12 years old. This is just before the, the building comes down. Why focus on these particular four girls? What kept drawing you back to them? Yeah, I just, um, I think Fifi is sort of a character who will be uh, the most accessible. But I actually wanted to present a few other girls who don't get to tell their stories. And Precious is sort of a, a kid who's very involved in church. And oftentimes when we hear about people who spend all their time at church, we're like, oh, these poor, like, you are missing out on society. But this kid is like, don't cry for me. Like, she has peace and joy in this Christian community. And then you've got a kid whose mom is a drug addict and just what that would look like. And then Stacey Buchanan, whose whose mother um, runs the neighborhood gang. And I just, I just thought, like, here would be three stories that people, like, maybe have never been exposed to. And I'm also interested in how sort of crime affects, like the ripple effects of of criminal activity. And so you've got you've got people involved in gangs and people who are struggling with drugs. And I just really wanted to show how that cripples an entire community and how that plays out in the children who are so close to these parents' terrible choices. Mm. Now, roping all this together, and I use that word very deliberately, <laughs> uh, is the fact that they, don't, they play rope games, and this is a recurring yeah. theme throughout the book. Tell us about the game and why it's important. Yeah, double dutch in my community, and for a very specific, a certain set of decades for little black girls, that was our game. And it doesn't take much. You just need a rope. You know, and there's some sports like tennis and golf where you need like a club and you need, you know, you need so much and it takes so much wealth to do it. And I think some of the games that little kids play in the inner city, they're very stripped down and basic because it's just the materials you can get your hands on. The double dutch rope is actually what people used as a clothesline in the southern states of of America. So they've taken this thing that was meant to just dry clothing and not not this generation of the 80s. I'm talking about going way back into the 40s. Like, they've taken this thing that's just, like, used in this very practical way. And then they're playing double dutch with it. And it is, like, the game. If you are not in school, you are outside jumping rope. And the little boys are playing basketball, mostly with, like, a crate they, you know, cut out. 
but the girls are jumping rope all the time. And mm-hmm. so you've got these very four different characters, but they're all drawn together by this game that they love. Mm. And the specific game is called All In Together, which is, again, really, really interesting because you are all in this this place together, but with yeah. very different experiences. Yeah, and so there are two games. There's Double Dutch and then All In Together, which is a more sort of basic game that anyone can play. Double Dutch takes a little bit more skill, right? But All In Together, I use it as a metaphor because you sort of jump in one at a time in this very introductory way, and then you jump out one at a time. And in the book, you'll understand why that's an important metaphor. Mm -hmm. But at one point, everybody's all together. Yeah. You talk about church and how this is just a good place for Precious, how she's very happy with that. Yeah. Uh, and Fifi comes to, to, to join the church too. Yeah. And for her, it's really the only quiet place that she has. Yeah. It's, you know, I think for Precious, you get the sense that at home, Precious has quiet places, you know? And we don't always value what it means to sort of come apart be still, be quiet, and check in with yourself, and especially not 12-year-olds. I wanted to really explore what giving these, like, important qualities to children, like how it would change their lives. And so what it means to have a healthy friendship as a 12-year-old, what it means to have a relationship with God at 12 years old, what it means to kind of have these spiritual disciplines, like, so early. And I imagine that, like, Having these things and learning these things at 12, that by the time she's 30, she's a very sort of well-grounded adult. Mm, mm. In terms of victimhood, I think that's something really interesting in this book because these girls could be seen as victims. But in fact, that's not how they see themselves. Yeah, I was not interested in victimhood (laughs) because I think when people present neighborhoods like this, they're very heavy on the like, Look at how doomed these people are. And I couldn't relate. Like, growing up, I I did see that there were so many negative things happening. But I've always, my family, honestly, like, we've always been filled with such hope that, like, this is a temporary situation. That this is not going to be our entire lives. And I feel like that's always missing from the news stories. It's always missing from, even when something happens and someone is a victim for a time, I feel like they be they remain in that state as victims for the rest of their lives. Mm. And that's unfair. And I just had an opportunity to present the other side. We see a lot of media coverage about the fate of young black boys, yeah. uh, police violence, also gang violence, a huge disproportionate amount of deaths within that particular demographic. And what you do really interestingly here is with Fifi's brother Michi, you take us through that switch from sweet young boy whose mother always knows where he is and makes sure he doesn't get into trouble to out and out gangster living on the street. Tell us how that happens. Yeah, I, I mean, and I was, I really wanted to present that journey because oftentimes you watch the news and you just see boy did this. And I really wanted to show what this boy's life could have been like and how oftentimes there there is no other sort of route or opportunity presented to little black children growing up or or like just children growing up in disadvantaged neighborhoods. So this journey of like how you go from just being a kid who hadn't even thought about their future and then watching everyone tell you who you're going to be 
you know? Police saying, you're going to be a criminal. And actual gangsters saying, you're going to be one of us, before he's even had a chance to think about what he wants to be. And so there's a lot of conversation in this book about people choosing who they want to become versus that sort of choice being taken away. Mm. But it seems to me that very few people in the book do have the luxury of choice. You know, here's what's complicated. These these children, they're sort of like 12 years old. When you think about other sort of cultures, how many 12-year-olds have decided what they want to be? And it's really unfair for people to think that little black kids ought to have it like all together. And it's sort of like a, it's like before they even understand that they're growing up and that they're going to be adults, someone has already sort of began to sort of pound in their heads who they are. And I don't know, I just, I really wanted to present what what happens when you've decided that a kid is going to be a certain thing and how they almost don't even have like a choice to pull themselves out of that. Mm. How much has the, the built environment got to do with how these kids live their lives? I think sort of at the time of this book, like it takes place in a summer, I think it has a lot to do with who they're becoming. Like, if you are, if you're sort of living in a war zone, you can't totally relax because you're always listening. You're always listening for gunshots. You're always looking for when something looks like it's not quite right. And it just kind of makes you, it could make you skittish sometimes. Like, there are times when, like, these kids have joy and they're playing. And, but then they also know that, like, at any moment that could change. And I don't think a lot of, children have to live that way. Mm. And so, again, I just had this opportunity to show you, like, a little sliver of what it's like sometimes for people who are living in public housing and how children have to live. And presumably, I mean, this has huge effects on people's later life. I mean, there must be a lot of underdiagnosed PTSD, for instance. I'm sure. And you know what's interesting? That diagnosis is almost a privilege, you know? Like, I think... There's this idea that black people are so strong and invincible and unbreakable. And I think it's pretty damaging. And it's I think it's incredible that some people do grow up in terrible spaces and they spend the journey of their lives sort of undoing that and sort of shedding this shell of PTSD on their own. And some people some people don't. Some people just sort of live with it somehow. Uh, now, Fifi goes on to have a, a successful life. And, and what I loved about it is that sometimes within the book, uh, you throw us forward and, and, and I kind of, I kept sort of breathing out thinking, <laughs> oh, thank heavens, I know she's going to be OK because you've just referred to something that happens in 20 years' time and she's OK, she's alive, yeah. she's doing well. Yeah. But she also is very, very traumatised by what has happened to her and particularly what happens to one of her friends, Tonya. And she yeah. blames another one of the group, Stacey, for, for what happened. And somehow she gets over that huge hatred for Stacia for what she did. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot about forgiveness here and that journey. Yeah, I just think um, if we can extend grace to other people and redemption, my goodness, we'd be in such a better place in society. And it is a journey. Like, it takes her a while to get there, to realize that this hate is eating her apart, that... that that there are more victims in the story than she thinks, mm. you know? And, yeah, I just, I don't know. I I think sometimes things happen to us in our friendships, and you have to kind of choose if you're going to forgive people and move forward or if you're just going to hold on to this hatred for the rest of your life. Mm. 
It's such an interesting part of this book, which really opened my eyes to, to a section of society that I knew very, very little about. And I wonder if people in Chicago, not living in those projects, not uh, not on the South Side, know much about it either. No, there have been people, I've had uh, readings um, in America, and people walk up to me and say, I drove past these buildings on the highway, had no idea. Or... Yeah, like I had a coworker who grew up here and I had no idea. And so I kind of set out to give this little sliver of a peek inside from an insider's perspective because I'd been hearing people talk about my neighborhood my whole life and they weren't telling a holistic story, in my opinion. Mm, it's wonderful to, to have that out there. I mean, how, I mean, Chicago, as we know, is this, this city of fantastic architecture. Yeah. How should it? Could it be built so that projects like that don't exist? Well, you know, at the time these buildings were constructed, I think there were policies that would be, there would be a lot more pushback if people tried to construct buildings in this way now. And I think back then... Because it is ghettoization, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. It was like, okay, all of these black people were moving up from the South and trying to find new opportunity, let's let them live over in this corner so that they don't disrupt the nice white people in this town. And then let's go ahead and build these buildings with the most basic materials because it's for those people. And I just, I would like to think, the optimism in my chest would like to believe that in, you know, in this day and age, if people attempted to construct buildings so poorly or try to use policies to keep people segregated, that at least we would irritate them <laughs> through protests and make it very complicated to do so. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's a it's a huge book and I wonder what the reaction's been in the States. I have been blown away by the reaction. I mean, people who grew up in these buildings, people who grew up on a farm in Wisconsin, like people who are from so many different walks of life have resonated with this tale, whether it's like female friendship or families or looking at sort of how we treat one another. And people come up to me all the time or they send me messages on Instagram and just say that like they were profoundly affected and it's sort of starting conversations in their friend groups and amongst their families. And you can only hope that something that you write could start so much dialogue. Mm. It took you a long time to write it. So what can we expect next? Ooh, more books set in Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Or about Chicagoans. Like, I just, I am really fascinated by how there are so many things written about Chicago, and it's still not my Chicago, or Black women and their sort of journey. And it's not like, I think these girls, they do have some traumatic experiences, but there's also experiences of joy that have not been explored. And so I'm I'm interested in telling, again, a more sort of holistic story about my culture and my city. Well, I really, really look forward to reading it. If it's anything like this, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> thank you. So I will thank you so much. Thank you. Last Summer on State Street is published by Murky Books. It's available now and it's by the wonderful Toya Wolf. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hole and Monica Lillis. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.